Last night, I got this Bible out and I opened it. And I was reminded that 15 years ago, Jared and I knew each other for about six months. And he gave this to me as a gift. And it's, it was my first study Bible. Because I had grown up Catholic, so I didn't really have a study Bible. Actually, I was never even encouraged to read my Bible. So thank you, Jared, for being the first one to give me a Bible. Yeah. And God also reminded me that this holds the key to everything that we need to navigate our lives, you guys. If you're asking for peace, if you're asking for guidance, if you're asking for God's presence, it's in here. So I just wanted to encourage you all to get in the Word. And then also, man, this David series, I don't know about you, but I have been challenged um, with every single message, like to the point where I'm kind of upset about it because, <laughs> because I literally am going, oh my gosh, Lord, I've got so much. I've got so much to work on. And I hope that today this word challenges you guys like it's challenged me since I've been preparing for it. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your truth, and thank you for this church and everyone here today. God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would open our hearts and our ears to hear specifically what it is you have to speak to each one of us individually. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, many years ago, I made a choice that hurt a really good friend of mine. And my bad decision actually ended a really good friendship that I had. And I regret it. There were consequences even to this day. And I could use the excuse that it was at a time before I was saved, because it was. But the truth is, even as a Christian who's doing my best to follow the Lord, who's doing my best to stay in his word and make the right choices, I still fail. I still sin. The main difference that I see between the unsaved me and the saved me is, number one, the conviction of my sin, and then the repentance that follows or should follow. And then the greatest part, of course, about being a Christ follower is God's grace, the gift of God's grace that gives me the strength and ability to turn from my sin altogether. I love what C.S. Lewis says about repentance. He says, repentance is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back is like. I love that. And then this is a really good quote on grace. Any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages us to live in sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say no to sin and yes to truth. What a gift God's grace is. So it was about eight years after I had hurt my friend that I gave my life to God. And what happened is God ended up convicting me from things from my past. And eventually I ended up calling that friend who I hadn't spoken to in years, and I asked for her forgiveness. And you know what? She did not forgive me. She actually said, I don't forgive you. And, I mean, that's on her, right? But God knew that I needed to bring that thing out and repent of it. And listen, not because it affected my salvation, 
but because he knew I needed to do that in order for him to bring me into a deeper fellowship with him. Because listen, once you're saved, your sins are forgiven. Jesus paid it all. God's forgiven every sin, past, present, and future. So then why do we repent? Why should we repent? Because it's about the condition of our hearts, and sin, unconfessed, stops us from experiencing the fullness in Christ that's offered through his sacrifice. And as we've been learning about the life of David, who was a man after God's own heart, I also saw in his story this powerful testimony of what repentance should look like and what God's grace looks like. Because listen, as awesome as David was, and he was pretty awesome, he was also honestly just a big bad sinner which sadly comforts me because I am a sinner. You guys are sinners. And a lot of us, including myself, have been made to believe that when we get caught up in some serious sin, that there's no way to redeem ourselves. But you know what? It's not our job. God's our redeemer. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've already been redeemed. But we have a lifelong journey of being redeemed renewed as Christians. And what does that mean, renewed? I love what it says in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. It says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I love that. So it means that by the power of the Holy Spirit, old uh, old things will be replaced by the new things that God has to offer us. It means that things that once ticked you off, for instance, I know we all struggle with this one, like when the little old man's driving 50 miles an hour in front of you on the interstate, won't tick you off anymore. Instead, you'll think things like, God bless that little old guy. Bless that little old woman, because that's going to be me someday. God willing, right? It means that old attitudes of unforgiveness, hatred, jealousy, selfishness will be replaced by attitudes of forgiveness, love, peacefulness, selflessness. And then it says even our thoughts can be renewed. Can you imagine lustful thoughts replaced with things that are pure and good and lovely? Can you imagine insecurities about yourself, negative talk towards yourself or even other people can be replaced by God's truth towards ourselves and others? But how do we get there? How do we get to that point of letting the Spirit renew our thoughts and attitudes and being able to put on that new nature? And here's what I believe Scripture tells us, and it's that without repentance, there can be no renewal without taking time for some self-examination to bring into light the things that are offensive to God and keeping us from a close fellowship with him, we won't experience the change that we want in our lives. And if you're not in the habit of doing that, examining your own heart, I, I believe it leaves an open door for sin to creep in and then to grow and grow, and we could end up on a really destructive path like a lot of other people that we never thought would fall. But don't we often look at other Christians who've committed a big sin and we think to ourselves, I would never do that. Well, you know what? They're probably not even saved. They probably don't even have the Holy Spirit. 
You guys, I've thought those things, I have said those things, and I have changed my mind because you know what that is? That's pride because we are all tempted. We all have weaknesses. But here's the question. How do Christians, even very strong Christians, great Christian leaders even that we've seen, fall into some pretty destructive sin? And when I was thinking about that and praying about that, the word stagnant came to mind. And the definition of stagnant is showing no activity, dull and sluggish. And I thought that's pretty fitting. Because when we become stagnant in our walk with God, when we're not actively seeking him and his will for our lives through prayer and through his word, when we become lazy and sluggish in our approach to the Christian life, I believe it leads to compromise, which ultimately leads to sin, which leaves us with consequences. And I'm going to say that again. When you become stagnant in your walk with God, it leads to compromise, which leads to sin, which leaves you with consequences. When there's no movement in our relationship with God, we'll start compromising all sorts of things, our integrity, our finances, our morality. What about our relationships and our families? How often are we compromising the most important people in our lives because we're putting anything and everything else before them? And listen, when we start compromising, we forfeit the blessings of God and his favor because we've stepped outside of his will and we're living our lives and basing our decisions from our flesh and our own desires and not from the spirit. And I believe that's exactly what happened with King David later in his life. It's believed he was around 50 years old when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, which basically led him to having her husband Uriah killed. And honestly, as I was studying for this and reading all these scriptures, I thought, really? This is David. We've learned about him. This is the same David that killed lions and bears as a young shepherd boy, protecting the sheep because he knew God was with him. The same David that conquered a giant because he had so much courage and nobody else did. The same David that stayed faithful and loyal to King Saul when he was acting like a psycho, chasing and stalking him, trying to kill him. God was with him, and David knew it. David's faith was big. So then what happened? He became stagnant. Look at what it says in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. Isaac Schaefer talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to expand on it. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Why did he stay behind? He had led his armies into victory after victory over the years, but this time he sent them off to follow somebody else. And listen, the people they were headed off to go fight, these weren't just enemies of the king, of David. These were enemies of God and God's people that at one time David had a passion for defending. But the Bible doesn't really tell us why he stayed behind. You know, maybe he was tired. Maybe he thought, I'm the king. I deserve to take a break from the battle. I've done my duty. Let somebody else handle it. And honestly, I can, I can relate to that a little bit because you know what? Sometimes the battles that we face in this life feel like way too much, so we just disengage. But as Christians, there is never a good time to stop engaging in the battles. And hear me, don't mistake rest for withdrawing. 
Because there's times that God will call us to rest, maybe from the things that we've been serving in or working in, and he calls us to rest, and that's good. But that does not mean we stop praying. That does not mean we stop being and spending time in God's word. But David's decision to stay behind was not a good one, as we will see. 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 5. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Can I just stop there for a second and tell you why that little detail about her period is important? Because listen, we so often, myself included, we skim over these things in scripture thinking that there's no relevance or why did I need to know that, God? But God is so good. He gives us every detail that we need. Leviticus 15, 28. When the woman's bleeding stops, she must count off seven days. Then she will be ceremonially clean, which means she can sleep with her husband again. That little detail gives us some insight. Her period probably lasted anywhere from four to seven days, give or take a few. Then she had to count off seven more days. Where would that leave her? Anyone? Ovulation. So it's, it's no surprise. I feel like God was showing us, like it's not a surprise that she slept with David once and got pregnant. Um, so it goes on to say she returned home. Later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. And in regards to David, when I look at this passage, I feel like he was just bored. He, he had no idea what to do with this time. You know, maybe he was feeling sorry for himself, like, I'm not in my prime anymore. I'm not, I'm not as strong and good-looking as I once was. He was having a midlife crisis. So he's roaming around up on the rooftop, twiddling his thumbs, when he should have been out leading his men in battle. And listen, if you're somewhere you shouldn't be, believe me, the devil will seize that opportunity. I know so many Christians who continually put themselves in places and situations that they should not be in, and they know it. Okay, so what does he see? Bathsheba bathing. Have you ever heard that saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop or playground? I can't remember if it's workshop or playground. Um, <laughs> but I think that's so, either, either one works. I, it's so true. Stagnant. David had no movement in his relationship with God. He was sitting there idling, and the devil loves that. Proverbs 13.4, a sluggard's appetite is never filled but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Spiritually speaking, David was hungry, but instead of filling himself with the presence of God and talking with God and being diligent like he used to be, he just filled himself with his own desires and he followed his flesh. A lustful desire rises up because he lingers way too long. He sends someone to find out who she is. They come back and they're like, She's the wife of Uriah, one of your soldiers. She's off limits. And listen, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, he's listed in Scripture as one of the mighty warriors of David. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 23. So he's one of David's best soldiers. Odds are they knew each other. They had probably battled together, but this was not enough to stop David. 
He had lost control. He was not walking with God. He follows his flesh, sends someone to bring her back to the palace. And then when she tells him that she's pregnant, he doesn't stop there. No, no. He goes on to hatch a cover-up plan. He sends for Uriah to return from the battlefield. And what he's doing is he's setting it up so that he can um, escape, right? He's setting himself up because Uriah comes back. He's playing it off like he just wants an update of the battle. How are you guys doing? How are the soldiers? Everything going okay? And then he says, go on home and relax, thinking to himself that Uriah will go home, sleep with Bathsheba because he hasn't seen her for a while, and David can wipe his hands clean because Uriah will think that the baby's his. But I know in my life, I don't know about you, I have discovered that plans of deceit, they don't pan out. And they didn't pan out for David either, because Uriah didn't go home. See, he was such a loyal man that he refused to go home and enjoy the comforts of his house, the comforts of his wife when his fellow soldiers were still on the battlefield. But David didn't give up. He tried one more time to get Uriah to go home. He got him drunk. Even then, Uriah held to his convictions. And this was a huge problem for David, who was caught up in this momentum of sin. And you know what? It actually seemed easy for him when he just was like, kill him. He committed murder. Because listen, oftentimes when we sin, whether it be lying or cheating or stealing or adultery, pornography, whatever it is, We do our best to try to cover it up. And sometimes, like in David's case, what do we do? We end up committing sin on top of sin on top of sin because we're so desperate to keep anyone from seeing the truth. But God sees it. God sees it. Isaiah 29, 15 says, What sorrow awaits those who try to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their evil deeds in the dark? The Lord can't see us, they say. He doesn't know what's going on. Our sin is not hidden from God. And listen, I'm not just talking about the big stuff. Let's not forget about the little things we just sweep under the rug. Things like gossip, slander, hatred, drunkenness, looking at a man or a woman with lust. But we just like to kind of turn our back on those things and believe that God doesn't see it. And David must have done the same thing. As a matter of fact, he had become so stagnant in his relationship with God that it took God sending Nathan the prophet to confront David. It took somebody else to open his eyes to his own sin. I mean, where was the conviction that David once had in his life? Well, here's the problem. When sin stays in the dark... That's where sin grows. That's where it will eventually turn into a bondage. And you end up in this momentum of sin like David was. He was in bondage to a sin. He was blinded by the sin or by the deception that sin puts on us. And God knew that David needed to bring that stuff out. So he sent Nathan. Nathan confronts him. David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for the sin. God forgave him. God spared his life. But there were consequences for David's sin, just like there's consequences for our sin and our bad choices. But you know what, you guys? I feel like a lot of Christians assume that because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, that we won't actually reap any consequences for our bad choices. And I want to talk about that just for a minute. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. 
This is so good. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. I love that. Because at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if what? If we don't give up. You notice where it says you will always harvest what you plant? So here's a question. What are you planting? Because whatever you're planting is going to grow. So maybe it's time for all of us to take a little walk around our garden and see if there's anything that needs to be pulled up by the roots. Because make no mistake, there are consequences for our sin. And there were consequences for David's sin. And you know what? We could spend an entire message talking about his consequences and how he dealt with them. But I want to move on to the best part. And that is that we serve a God who restores and who renews. Because when David confessed to Nathan, he owned his sin. In that moment, he turned his heart back to God and God began to renew him and restore him. Because the moment we confess, the very moment that we call out our own weaknesses and our own sin is the moment that God's grace will flood your life. We need to confess our sins. And listen, not just to God, but oftentimes to somebody else. And I think we've forgotten about this. James 5, 16 Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Did you hear that? You guys, as Christians, we, you have been made righteous if you are in Christ, okay? So this is talking about you if you know Jesus as your Savior. Your prayers for other people have power and will produce wonderful results in their lives. We need to be praying for each other. I need your prayers. I want to pray for you. Confession and repentance are so important. And you know what? Satan knows it. That's why he wants to keep you stagnant. He wants you to keep your sins in the dark, big or small. Because Satan knows that once you bring those things out into the light, that you'll see the truth. And what does the truth do? Anybody? Sets you free. The truth always defeats Satan. But the longer you keep things hidden in the dark, the more numb you will become to the Holy Spirit's conviction. So do you have a sin or sins, big or small, in your life that you think are hidden? Because God sees it. And you might be sitting there thinking that, you know, I'm fine. I'll deal with it. I'm still a good Christian. But you know what that means? That means that you have no forward movement in your relationship with God. It means you've become stagnant and you're waiting on things to change, but you're not taking one single step of obedience to make that happen. David knew especially after all that junk he pulled, he knew that he needed God. He knew he needed God's strength to keep his heart right. And that's why he wrote Psalm 51 about his sin. And in verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why did he say that? Because sin stole the joy he once had. 
He used to feel happy, excited, passionate about who God was and being in fellowship with him, and sin stole it, and he wanted it back. And he knew he served a God that would give it back to him. Verse 17, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. And when I read that, I thought to myself, I wonder if we've lost sight of the chain-breaking power of true repentance. Because listen, unconfessed sin, all that does is it keeps us shackled to our pasts. But when you start just getting it all out and being shaken up by your own sinfulness and the things that you've kept hidden, that's when chains will be broken in your life. That's when you'll start to feel the transformation of God happen in your heart and your life. It's supernatural, you guys. We have a responsibility as Christians to bring our hearts before God, to bring our sin before God, so that he can start to work in our lives. And as we come to a, uh, a close here, we're going to start to wrap it up here. Um, David Little is going to come and read this testimony. Um, and I'm going to share with you who it is after he's done reading it. But it's a real-life story of the power of God's grace and that we, we serve a God who truly can make us new. And it's so good. And I'll let you know who it is when he's done. Now, I was 22 years old, and the forces of Satan were becoming more and more evident in my life. I felt as if something was trying to take control of my life. I began to read the Satanic Bible. I began to practice various occult rituals and incantations. I am utterly convinced that something satanic had entered into my mind, and looking back at all that happened, I realized that I had been slowly deceived. I did not know what bad things were going to result from this, yet over the months, the things that were wicked no longer seemed to be such. I was headed down the road to destruction. Eventually, I crossed that invisible line of no return and after years of mental torment, behavioral problems, deep inner struggles in my own rebellious ways, I began committing horrible crimes. Looking back, it was all an awful nightmare, and I would do anything if I could undo everything that happened. Six people lost their lives. Many others suffered at my hand and will continue to suffer for a lifetime, and I am sorry for this. In 1978, I was sentenced to about 365 consecutive years virtually burying me alive behind prison walls. Ten years into my prison sentence, when I was feeling like I had no hope, another inmate came up to me as I was walking into the prison yard. He introduced himself and began to tell me that Jesus Christ loved me and wanted to forgive me. Although I knew he meant well, I mocked him because I never thought God would forgive me or that he would want anything to do with me. Still, this man persisted, and we became friends. Little by little, he would share with me about his life and what he believed Jesus had done for him. He kept reminding me that no matter what a person did, Christ stood ready to forgive if that individual would be willing to turn from the bad things he was doing and would put his full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, dying for our sins. He gave me a Bible and asked me to read the Psalms, and I did. Every night I would read from them, it was at this time that the Lord was quietly melting my stone-cold heart. One night I was reading Psalm 34 where in verse 6 it says, The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. 
It was at this moment in 1987 that I began to pour out my heart to God. Everything seemed to hit me at once. The guilt of what I had done, the disgust at what I had become. Late that night in my cold cell, I got down on my knees and I began to cry to Jesus Christ. I asked Jesus to forgive me for my sins. I spent a good while on my knees praying to him. When I got up, I felt as if this heavy but invisible chain had been around me for so many years and was now broken. A peace flooded over me. In my heart, I just knew somehow in my life it was going to be different. So many good things have happened in my life since. I started an outreach right here in the prison where I work in a special needs unit with men who have various emotional and coping problems. I pray with them as we read our Bibles together. I get the chance to show them brotherly love and compassion. I have worked as the chaplain's clerk and also have a letter writing ministry. I've been able to share what God has done in my life as well as warn others about the dangers of involvement in the occult. One of my favorite passages of scriptures is Romans 10:13. It says, "For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Here it is clear that God has no favorites. He rejects no one, but welcomes all who call upon him. I know that God is a God of mercy who is willing to forgive. He is perfectly able to restore and heal our hurting and broken lives. So good. Thanks, Dave. So that testimony, that's a partial testimony. There's more to his story, which you guys should read. But that is the testimony of David Berkowitz, who was the son of Sam serial killer from the 1970s in New York City. Isn't that amazing? And I think, wow, you know, even though this guy will live the remainder of his lives, his life behind bars, he's free. He's probably more free than some of us sitting here. And God gets the glory. And you know what? If, if God's grace can do that for somebody like a serial killer, imagine what it could do in your life if you opened up to God's grace. Jesus died for us so that we could be free from the control of of sin. Romans 8, 1 through 3, so God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have, and in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. You guys will always deal with sin on the side of heaven, but God sent Jesus to end sin's control over you. How do you get out from underneath the control of sin? You expose it to the light of God's truth. You confess it before him. And that is exactly what both Davids did in this message. For David Berkowitz, the serial killer, it was the beginning of his salvation. For King David, the adulterer, the murderer, it was returning to the joy of his salvation. And as we come to a close here, you guys, as we get ready to go into this last worship song, I'm going to come off the stage, and I'm going to come around to the front because I want to open up the front. I want to open up the altar today, and I'm going to be the first one down here. But I just want to ask all of us, whether it's your first time here or you've been here since the beginning, 
as a church body, as the body of Christ, to actually take a physical step of faith, a physical step of obedience towards God and begin to bring things out of the darkness into his light. Ask, Come up here and ask God to show you, to reveal to you anything and everything, big or small, that's keeping you from walking in the fullness of his blessings and his favor. Because you guys, sin stops that, puts a wall between you and the Lord, not because he's doing it, but because we're holding on to things that we need to let go. And we're not trusting that we serve a God that is more powerful and bigger than our sin and our struggles and our weaknesses. So I'm going to be up here doing this, and I hope some of you guys will join me. And it's just between us and God. I'm not asking anybody to confess anything to anybody else today. Lord, I just thank you for the people that are in this church today. And God, I ask that you would stir in our hearts. I ask that you would give us the courage to take a step of obedience. And yes, Lord, we can stay seated. You don't, we don't have to walk up here to your altar, but God, there's power in that. There's something about physically moving towards you. It kicks Satan in the face, as Heather likes to say. So God, I ask that you would stir in our hearts. Show us, Lord, what we need to bring before you. I pray that we would experience freedom and that we would experience your grace like we've never experienced before in the name of Jesus.